Welcome to the Seller Growth Podcast, sharing valuable tips and information in the Amazon and e-commerce space. Each week, we deliver the best interviews with some of the top Amazon personalities in the industry to help you grow your business. Here is your host, Rob Stanley. Hey everyone, Rob Stanley with the Seller Growth Podcast. And today I've got Chris Schifferling from Global Wired Advisors. What's up, Chris? Hey, Rob. How are you, man? I'm doing great. I'm doing great. Uh, so this will be a really interesting one. We, we've had people kind of on the show talking about buying Amazon companies, but today we're going to be talking about why are all these Amazon brands and aggregators for sale? Like there's so many for sale and there's, of course, a lot of companies yeah. buying them. So this this will be an interesting one, Chris, and I'm looking forward to you know hearing what your perspective is on this. So uh, let's let's kick this off and uh, welcome everybody. First, hit that like and subscribe. And if you do get a chance, post some uh, uh, questions in the comment section and Chris and I will be happy to uh, reply to those. So we'll just kick this off right now. And uh, so where is this new capital coming from, Chris? Like there's just seems like an influx of capital right now to all these companies to buy, yeah. whether it's a seller or an aggregator in our industry. Yeah. Help us out here. Well, it's not a new concept. I mean, the the term arbitrage has been used for for quite some time. Whether it's um, arbitrage from a consumer product perspective or arbitrage from a multiple multiple perspective, you know, um, private equity has really always kind of played the game of multiple arbitrage, where they buy a specific um, asset or a company for call it a seven eight multiple and hold for three four five years, and they're able to then uh, sell it again, right, for a much larger multiple. Pretty much day one that the that the company was purchased through private equity, um, it's worth more than it was the day before, right? And so this idea of arbitrage has been around for some time, and really that's what we're seeing right now. Um, you know, we saw some some early adopters to this uh, multiple arbitrage game where they saw hey, you know, Amazon brands are starting to have real staying power. They have brand and now they're starting to get real cash flow where four years ago, maybe five years ago, that just that wasn't the case. You know, when you had the FBA gold rush of 2015, um, it was a lot of new brands and a lot of people dismissed these brands because some of them, most of them were side hustles or, um, you know, they were they were purchasing product in different categories. There wasn't a whole lot of consistency to the brand. Um, and then over time, as it, as the brands got more staying power, got more vertically focused, and also started growing in cash flow, the value of that company went up. And so that's really where you kind of see the genesis of, of, of this new capital coming in. So to the question, where is it coming from? Well, it's coming mainly right now from venture debt and some equity sources. Um, so they've done... You know, you've got about close to 80 different aggregators. They say that they've done, you know, a new raise um, and they sent out a, um, an announcement, a PR announcement about that raise. And majority of that is is debt funding. It's not cheap, um, but it's funding to help uh, fund both what we call the, you know, you know, operational alpha, which is really the back end shop, the ops um, uh, function of the business. And then also. Uh, to to go out and 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 purchase and acquire these Amazon based brands. Typically, 70, 80 percent um, revenue concentration needs to be uh, on the Amazon platform. And so that's the other unique piece is that 
there's always been a lot of platform risk around Amazon, but with this particular uh, capital, they're uh, fairly risk averse um, to the Amazon platform. And surprisingly, a bit ironically, uh, they actually don't like um, businesses that are majority off Amazon. Most of these new of these new quote roll up or aggregator companies um, that have been able to raise most of this uh, venture debt and venture equity. So that's the answer to uh, <laughs> where is it all coming from and how did this thing start? Yeah, no, that's and that's a great answer. Uh, you know, especially it's just it's crazy out there. It, it's a little wild west sort of. <laughs> kind of reminds right. me of the uh, the early two thousands. Kind of the inner, you know, obviously we had the a bubble. big inner, yeah, the bubble. But uh, there's, I mean, if you look, the, we got the yeah, the stock market's going nuts. The housing uh, market's going nuts. The Amazon market's going nuts. Yeah, I mean, so it kind of it, you know, it's just kind of a. Uh, Kind of a pyramid everything's following that way right it's a big yeah. arrow pointing up right now so we did actually have a question come in uh somebody was asking and and hopefully you can answer this because this is definitely out of my league but they're asking what the difference is between a broker a business broker and a professional investment banker hopefully okay. you know the answer to that because that's definitely a little out of my league we, we usually ask that question when we go i wonder who that came from that's that's uh that's a curious that's a curious question um must have some followers out there chris <laughs> interesting question uh only because we've done a lot of content around that you know kind of really distinguishing between what a traditional business broker process looks like and what a more of an investment banking process looks like um we could probably spend the entire show on it. So not to get uh, completely rabbit trailed here, I'd say it really boils down to ability and process. And if you were to start with ability, you know, typically, you know, a business brokerage is, is, is made up of lots of 1099, what I call desk guys. Um, so they're really licensing a name per se. Um, it's a lot like, it's a lot like real estate. And so, um, what were their backgrounds prior to getting involved in, say, you know, financial markets? Um, you know, it's a myriad of different things. Some own their own business, they sold it, and now they're they're they believe they've got qualifications to 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 now sell companies and get heavily involved in mergers and acquisitions. Um, some had just corporate jobs. Some. Uh, I've even seen some things come around, not in our space, but uh, I saw an announcement of a new broker of a of a brokerage here in town. He was a fireman like two weeks ago and a chief, and now he's selling businesses. It's just a little <laughs> disjointed. So that kind of gives you a little bit of flavor of kind of, you know, what a business broker uh, kind of background or ability looks like. They typically don't come from any of the bulge bracket investment banks or any of the larger financial services. Uh, companies that are out there. Um, and so that's really around ability on the broker side, ability on the investment banking side. You typically, so and specifically for our firm as well, you typically have managing directors or managing partners that have um, spent time in the bulge bracket investment banks. That would be the Wells Fargo, the Bank of America, the Citibanks, you know, call it just Wall Street um, experience, working on very large transactions. And even if not coming from, say, um, bulge bracket coming from at least middle market investment banks working for folks like Piper Sandler, um, other various boutique middle market investment banks. Um, you know, typically with an investment bank too, and this market isn't there yet. And again, this is a whole other podcast, I promise. Yeah. But uh, 
Typically, investment banks have what's called a broker dealer, and it's just not needed right now, although our investment bank is headed towards that registration. And really what that means is you're able to broker securities. So whether that means you're brokering specific securities, uh, equity securities for a transaction um, or, or for public equities or you're selling bonds um, or you're selling debt. Um, that's typically why an investment bank will go broker dealer, um, but it's not needed to specifically take on a company and sell that particular business. Um, and then it's process. So I'll go through this very quickly. You know, business broker has a very quick process. It's very passive. Um, it's not it's not very, um, I would say, active. Um, even though you've got some folks claiming that they do a lot of data pull, that they do a lot of kind of data mining. The reality is the difference between that process and what an investment bank will do is, is almost night and day in terms of the procuring of industry information, true industry information, true data about that industry, as well as 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 your that the company that are, is our client and also comp data. Right. So a bunch of a bunch of competitor information and then really highlighting the opportunity. And then we take it out and we create a market versus just hitting a button and blasting it out to a huge buyer list. So like I said, there's a lot to it. One is more sophisticated and upmarket and one isn't. That's really, if I were to boil it down, that's pretty much it. Yeah, no, that that's great information. And uh, you know, once again, so I'm Rob Stanley, Chief Market Officer with the Crew Me, and welcome back to the Seller Growth Podcast. And I've got Chris Schiffferling and we're talking about global, or I'm sorry, from he's from Global Wired Advisors. We are talking about why Arl these Amazon brands and aggregators are for sale. And yep. so let's let's spin this a little more to the sellers, okay? Uh, let's see how we could maybe help them or give them a little more information. So if our listeners want to go directly to one of these funds, mm -hmm. what should they expect, Chris? And don't answer that yet. We're gonna answer that right after this commercial. This content is brought to you by Accrumi, the business-friendly funding solution for Amazon sellers. If you are a profitable Amazon seller looking for capital to grow your profits, click the link around this video or visit accrumi.com for a no-risk funding estimate in less than three minutes. Yeah, so head on over to accrumi.com, fill out that form. Be sure to mention the Seller Growth Podcast or Rob or Accrumi Podcast, one of those, because I would really appreciate it. Hit that like and subscribe, two thumbs up. We'd appreciate that. And once again, I got... Chris Schifferling from Global Wired Advisor, and he was about ready to answer a really great question for everybody who's listening on if our listeners wanted to go direct to one of these funds, what should they expect? Yeah, they should expect a few things. I mean, one, you know, um, I think if, if, if you really believe that you have a commodity um, business, if you believe that you, you know, don't have a brand that's worth, um, worth strong value um, and, and has a a potential for, I'd call it just multiple bids from lots of different potential strategic partners, then yeah, I would say go direct, go direct to any fund. Because you know, if, if, if you believe that bid from that fund and that deal structure from that fund is identical to the other 80, of course you'd go buy yourself. Of course you just, A, you'd go alone, right? You just go directly to the fund, you'd sell the business, you have a liquidity event. And perhaps you thought maybe I never could have had a liquidity event. Um, and, uh, and you get your check, you get your deal done and you move on. Right. But the reality is there's also a lot of pitfalls to doing that, you know, uh, behind a lot of these names that are now getting lots of venture, venture debt and, and, and equity. Um, you know, they, they came from some, some pretty, pretty important roles in large investment banks. And so, 
you know, if you believe that you can go to the mat with these with these M and A teams um, to get the deal structure that is fully optimized, um, and and you believe you've got the chops to be able to go through the due diligence and also the closing, um, then sure, I think you're you might be po you might be you might be in a good position to to go at it alone. But you know, when you do go alone, you don't have a representation. You are you are going to be starting off from a position of weakness, not a position of strength when it comes to negotiating. I'd say that's probably number one. Number two, um, if you don't have extremely clean financials and extremely clean books and just all of your data is packaged uh, in a very in a very organized way, um, you're going to run into some pitfalls because like anything else, if, if they sense anything wrong with the numbers, they're going to look at it as an opportunity to then try and get a better deal for them, not a, not you. Right. Um, and then even just down to simple things like it's not simple, but just a simple term like the asset purchase agreement, you know, really having what I would call someone as a quarterback to uh, to walk you through all of that, not just your lawyer. Your lawyer gets paid whether the deal gets done or not. Right. An intermediary gets paid only when the deal actually goes through. So it's really important, in my opinion, to have a trusted, um, experienced advisor uh, that's walking you through all of that due diligence and, of course, all the closing, walking you through the documents and giving their point of view to really help when it comes to the business structure of the deal versus just the legal structure of the deal. I mean, you know, I could give you countless amount of times where, you know, we've we've been able to introduce our clients um, to some really strong um, legal firms. And we use one in particular that we really, really like, you know, fairly large middle market M&A um, firm. And there are times where when we're combing through and find detail of that uh, APA, you know, there are some things that that uh, that we're able to catch. Not a, not a ton, but there are things that are fairly material as well. So, yeah, I would say that's that's when you would want to go at it alone is if you really believe you've got an, a, a commodity and you don't think that you've got a brand that would procure a lot of different, um, um, I would say, attractiveness or, um, from lots of different acquirers. Yeah, so piggybacking off that. And, oh, once again, I got uh, Chris Schifferling from uh, Global Wired Advisors here with me. And we are talking about why are all these Amazon brands and aggregators for sale. So, I'm sorry. So uh, piggybacking off what you were just talking about, let's go into a little bit of, uh, you know, let's kind of help out some of the sellers and people watching. What are some of these investment people looking for? Like specifically, let's say in the uh, Amazon seller side, but then there's like the aggregator side also. There's got to be something attracting them to certain ones versus others. What could you? Uh, what have you seen on that, Chris? Yeah, I mean, look. I think if you've got a really great brand, um, if you've got, um, and that's really that's a vague term, um, but if you've got a brand that's got, um, you know, real uh, staying power, it's got real loyalty. Um, your sales, your sales growth is very strong. Your cash flow is equally strong. You've got still a lot left in terms of opportunity and runway um, to grow the brand from, you know, from where it is today to where it could be in two or three years. Um, you know, you've got to bid for your company pretty much across the board from aggregators to financial sponsors, which I would call private equity um, family offices, all the way up to corporate strategics to really pay attention, especially if you're at a specific um, EBITDA level. But really what separates, I'd say, the wheat from the chaff, you know, 
a lot of these aggregators are going after cash flow. I've seen them purchase businesses where I just had to shake my head and say, that is a really, really interesting purchase. <laughs> you know, that's definitely not probably number one on my list. And I'm not even just saying that from a, from a pure subjective, um, uh, you know, perspective, but I would say it just wasn't a great, it wasn't a great brand, but it had cash flow. So they, they were purchasing that cash flow. Um, and I think that is definitely the difference with an aggregator bid and aggregators who are really desperate, some of them, not all of them, um, desperate for that cash flow and buying that Amazon brand because they've been funded and they can't let money sit in the bank. They've got to go purchase businesses. And so that versus a, uh, you know, call it private equity, family office, corporate strategics, they're going to be looking for more of what I described in the beginning. And also they're going to be looking for something that is of, of value to them. Right. So like specifically in a corporate strategic, they're going to be looking for a, what we call a tuck in acquisition or a roll up that really fits the brand, maybe a corner, the actual brand that, that is the, the corporate strategic that you're talking to. So let's just say it's in pet and it's a larger pet company. Um, you know, maybe you offer something, whether it's market share, you've actually been stealing some of their market share. So that's interesting to them, or you've got a product or IP that they think is really intriguing that they could take. And you may be only on Amazon, but they go, Hey, we've got lots of shelf space space out there and lots of other, uh, um, sales channels, as well as the sales infrastructure and marketing infrastructure to take you from just this one place all the way over to say these other five or six places and grow the company almost immediately. Um, you know, those are the types of things that, that, that a corporate strategic is looking at and private equity tends to kind of look at it a bit similar. You know, it's gotta be a really good fit. Typically the funds that are, are, um, are raised, you know, in private equity, they've got a, they've got a strategic direction they want to go in. Um, aggregators do too, but it's just a bit more broad. You know, aggregators are looking for cash flow and what's the revenue concentration. And then sometimes they're looking and going, is this a bit too commodity? But I mean, I've seen some commodities get purchased in this space that private equity never would touch for with aggregators. Yeah. So in my head, I was kind of thinking like, okay, for the Amazon side, when it comes to like, you know, the brands out there, I kind of was trying to look at it and maybe you could correct me on this, but I was looking at as, are some of these buying, like, let's say they offer a three to five X type multiple on it. Are they looking at it as, okay, we are pretty sure that we could get in here and, you know, increase the, the profits on this company by 20, 30% of this brand. And we'll get our money back pretty quickly that way. Or are they sometimes looking at it, uh, they, you know, if they pick it up at a three, four X, Hey, this is making good, steady money. This could last for, you know, six to eight years. We'll ride out that three, four X to get our money back. And then after that, it's just a, a windfall of, you know, money coming in. But I was just kind of curious, like, is, is that a couple ways they look at it? And then on the aggregator side, are they also looking at the IP, the intellectual property possibly, but don't answer that yet. We got a quick commercial break. And we'll be right back. This content is brought to you by Acrumi, the business-friendly funding solution for Amazon sellers. If you're a profitable Amazon seller looking for capital to grow your profits, click the link around this video or visit Acrumi.com for a no-risk funding estimate in less than three minutes. Yeah, so welcome back to the Sell Growth Podcast. I got 
Chris Schifferling from Global Wired Advisors. And I was just asking more on the question we were just talking about that basically are some of these uh, companies that are buying, let's say the Amazon brands, are they looking at just basically like adding fuel to the fire to make more money? Or are they kind of just writing it out where it could be a long-term investment and they'll get their money back? Then on the aggregator side, I was ask, asking about intellectual property mm -hmm. as maybe a, uh, something that attracts them to that. So what's your your take on that, Chris? Yeah, it's a, oof, it's a bit broad. So I'd say, you know, the short answer is yes to all of the above. A typical private equity will, will purchase, you know, for a fund. Um, and then they're looking at a four or five year path to really flipping that over into the middle market. You know, they want to take something that is at least the types of businesses that we take to market. Let's say it's, it's, um, it's, it's uh, firing off $3 million of EBITDA today. Um, you know, private equity firm buys it for, for seven times multiple. So all in is a $21 million um, uh, enterprise value. I mean, they're, they're looking to, to try and get that to a $10 million EBITDA in the next five years and try and sell that now for $100 million. You know, that's kind of where their mindset is most of the time. Um, with aggregators and, and, and IP, uh, it's a good question. Yes, I think IP always plays a, a role in the conversation. But I mean, I've, I've heard of and I've heard of deals that have been um, in transactions that have gone off that where there's little, there's no IP. It's just trademark. Um, so really, it's just the yeah. brand itself. So it, it, it's, it's I'd say in private equity, it plays a little bit more of a role when it comes to valuing the business um, and, and placing stronger enterprise value on the company. Um, but when it comes to specific aggregators, I don't think it necessarily plays. It's not playing front stage, but for some of them, it, it is. I mean, you got 80 of them out there and they're not all the same. That's also that's also why going back to a previous question, you know, uh, it's about, you know, should someone go direct? Well, the reality is, you know, unless you believe everyone is the same, but they're not, you know, different, different aggregator funds have different strategies and different categories and how they view businesses. Um, so some are placing some, some stronger, I'd say chips in the IP bucket and others aren't. Some are placing a strong, more chips in the brand bucket. Others are not. So, yeah, you've got differing opinions, but but, but you're going to, of course, have that when you have 80 different funds that are out there, <laughs> just in aggregators. Yeah, yeah, they're going to all have their own motives and ways of doing things for sure. Mm -hmm. And uh, so, be, hey, real quick, everybody, be sure to hit that like and subscribe. I would appreciate that. Uh, you know, and, and once again, I got Chris Schifferling from Global Wired Advisors, and we're talking about why are all these Amazon brands and aggregators for sale? I, I laugh every time because it's so true. There are so many. But uh, we did have a question come in, Chris. So this this is a pretty, I, I want to say broad question, but I'm sure you can at least come up with a good answer. Somebody was asking, why are private equity companies interested in e-commerce based businesses? I think you did answer a little bit, but uh, you know, is there a little more to that? Like why that? Why yeah. are they taking such an interest? I mean, hey, why aren't they jumping on the Bitcoin stuff, you know, or something like that instead? Well, but, I mean, uh, look, I, go I ahead. Think yeah, and I, and I can answer this. It's it is this is definitely a topic I think that would take a whole other podcast too. But I think to try and be succinct, you know, when you've got venture debt and you've got venture equity that comes into a space, that that's that's usually usually kind of the first wave in all all capital markets. I mean, this is nothing's new under the sun when it comes to what's currently happening in this particular space. And so, 
you know, it's like the Grand Canyon in some ways, right? So if you've been to the Grand Canyon, you see all the geological eras that are in the rocks. Um, I'd say that the venture debt, venture equity and the aggregator is, uh, you know, kind of aggregators that are out there is just kind of one sliver. And usually what comes next is that private, is that true private equity and family office money. Um, they usually come a bit later after, you know, venture debt and equity is usually the canary in the coal mine. And they usually come after all the mistakes have been made. And uh, but they'll pay up for businesses, you know, businesses that have been in a particular ecosystem or a sector, um, they're starting to mature. And so instead of the three to four, four and a half, which, by the way, that's a whole other topic. Multiples are starting to definitely go up. But the three and a half to four kind of traditional multiple private equity come in, will come in and see value because a sector is already maturing and start paying up for good businesses, because those businesses that are still around, in that top quartile will be great businesses purchase and they're great assets. Um, and so why is now private equity coming in? I mean, there's a, there's a couple of reasons and I mentioned it earlier, you know, so venture debt usually comes in. They're also not scared of, of cash burn, but most of these businesses are cash flow positive since day one. That's actually kind of fast forwarded why private equity is wanting to sniff around and buy an e-commerce based business. Um, you know, number two, there's got a lot of staying power now with Amazon based brands and just e-commerce based uh, or D to C based brands in general. Um, and they're also becoming real brands. I mean, that sounds again, that sounds so silly to say. And it sounds really just kind of not uh, it doesn't really sound very professional, but it's the truth that they're, they've become real brands. And they've got uh, and part of that is kind of playing hand in hand with the staying power. Um, on top of that, though, and what's really kind of pushing this massive paradigm shift is COVID, period, <laughs> right? I mean, you yeah. saw this wave, this paradigm shift occur through COVID, and that in itself is now having lots of staying power, right? You've got 7 million new consumers using the internet for commerce, number one. Number two, you saw 10 years of e-commerce sales penetration fast forward in three months. Everybody is quoting the McKinsey report back in July. Reality is there's tons of reports that are out now throughout the full year and even going into this year that's showing that e-commerce is not going anywhere. I just read an article this morning, happy to send it to you, Rob, later, um, that basically the whole premise of it was just this, that this isn't slowing down anytime soon. It's probably going to continue lasting until just the, the, the strong growth within e-commerce is going to last at least until 2025, if not 2026, at about the same rates that we're seeing the growth that occurred last year going into this year. So positive news for anyone who's involved in e-commerce, I can tell you that. Um, but, uh, but part of it is a larger macro reason why private equity is getting in. And then I also kind of outlined some of the more micro reasons. Yeah, it's interesting you mentioned that article. I, I don't think I read that one, but I did read one about kind of the housing market. And the housing market, they're predicting uh, 2023 to 2025, it's still going to keep growing into that time frame, which, yeah. I mean, it's crazy. It's absolutely nuts out there right now in the I, housing market. So I saw, I saw today, um, I saw something where I guess commercial real estate is starting to tick back up, not because people are wanting offices, but they're buying this land and these office buildings to tear them down to build housing. Oh, that's interesting approach right there. Yeah. Yeah. yeah not to get off too much on the subject. Malls yeah. are going away and getting torn down. And I specifically saw an article around um, to build distribution centers for e-commerce. Yeah. Now that's, that's crazy. It seems like I said, I was kind of saying like, you know, the whole thing with the pyramid, it's like, 
we got the economy going that way, a stock market going that way, you know, all these aggregators and, and everybody buying them and buying, you know, the e-commerce seller type people. It's, it's all going up. It's going nuts. It is. And now, no, you know, do, do you think and this is a question I actually came up with? Do you think, Chris, that I mean, there could be a bubble, at least in this sort of e-com boom that we're seeing of, you know, all these people buying all these companies? And uh, I mean, what's what's your thoughts on that? Well, you want to say yes, because, you know, our minds always want to play in a vacuum and they always want to they always want to be as myopic as possible. But when you really kind of lens out, when you see that every two minutes there's someone new on the seller central platform, I don't know if that actually starts to support that there's a bubble right now, maybe later down the road where, yeah, it starts to get way too overheated and overvalued. But most of these businesses are still way undervalued when you look at when you look at typical middle market uh, multiples, right? For consumer products, you know those averages over the past couple of decades has, have been really between seven to thirteen, if not up to fifteen multiple, right? So I mean, we're still undervaluing a lot of these brands. I still think there's a lot of runway now with a bubble with aggregators. Yeah, I mean, probably, probably you're going to have a bit, a bit of it's going to be a little a little top heavy on how many uh, new funds have been have been raised specifically to buy Amazon based businesses. I think that, um, uh, you know, there there might be a, a bit a bit too much competition. But look, we, we live in a capitalistic society. You know, capitalism tends to take care of that problem. Right. Where when you have too many, some of them are going to fail. And that is natural. It's very natural for that to happen. And I think that that's probably what we'll see more so than just a bubble being burst and everything getting devalued, right? Or deflation. I think you're going to continue to see e-commerce brands go up in value, but maybe you'll see a little bit of, of a bubble with just this particular um, type of fund. Um, but then again, there's thousands upon thousands of private equity funds that are out there buying all types of businesses and consumer products. So it's a question mark. <laughs> yeah, for sure. You know, one one interesting thing you never read, right? Like uh, it sounds like you and I read a lot of very similar articles and, and they're always talking about this many people this year signed up to sell on Amazon, right? There's all these sellers jumping on there. Where's the number on how many of those accounts are static? How many never you know, actually created a product. They just went and opened it and then never did anything with it. How many stopped selling? You know, like they don't ever want to share that. They want to talk about the millions of people selling yeah. on Amazon. Yeah. But the truth is there's a lot of accounts out there that are just static. So that's that's a pretty interesting one. Yeah, that, you uh, probably, I mean, I think probably like anything, and this is a bit of the, you know, this is kind of law of stats. It's like an 80-20. You probably have, you know, 20% driving 80% of the revenue and the rest are just exactly in that bucket that you just described. Yeah. Yeah. It's always that that's true for a lot of things. I mean, it that, is. It, you know, <laughs> it's, it's how, true look how many people have uh, still have eBay accounts, but nobody sells on it. Right. It's true. No, <laughs> they probably could claim they have more accounts than anybody. But the truth is, how many are really selling, you know, or sell occasionally. So it, it right. just. It's just interesting, you know, you see all these stats about new sellers. But anyways, we're going to move on. And we got definitely more for everybody. So uh, hang tight. We will do a quick commercial. But the question coming up next will be, what are the three things businesses can do to make their company more attractive to these acquisition, you know, companies that want to acquire you? So hang tight after this quick commercial break. All sellers are looking to grow their business. 
why not take advantage of the Acrumi.com Grow Now and Pay Later option? Acrumi is not a bank. They truly only win when you win with growth capital funding. What are you waiting for? Head on over to Acrumi.com now. Be sure to mention the podcast. Yeah, so if you head over to Acrumi.com and fill out that free three-minute estimate, no commitment, be sure you mention the Seller Growth Podcast or Acrumi Podcast when you're filling out that form. I really appreciate it. Should be a drop-down menu coming up here soon that you can just select it. But uh, yeah, so welcome back to the Seller Growth Podcast. I've got uh, Chris Shipferling from Global Wired Advisors, and we are talking today about why are all Amazon brands and aggregators for sale? It just seems like everybody's for sale right now. So uh, I did leave uh, before the break asking Chris this this uh, question. I'll ask it one more time just so everybody who's jumping in. What are three things businesses can do to make themselves more attractive to these buyers? Chris, take it away. Oh man, a lot. I mean, number one, you know, I'd say understand understand your financials. Um, and again, I'm going to speak. I'm going to speak in very broad terms. I'm going to speak in in things that. I'm going to try and get as 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 deep as possible, um, and definitely something that, by the way, anybody who's listening, um, contact us. I'm happy to have long conversations about any and all of this, and and really try and make it a bit more customized, say to to your particular uh, brand, your particular company. Um, but know your numbers. I mean, that's 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 pretty simple. Hire a really good bookkeeper, a really strong, you know, kind of call it financial. Um, uh, financial function within your business, you know, really knowing where your numbers are from both, you know, P&Ls, profit and loss statements, um, understanding your cash flow, your 13 week cash flow, um, how that marries up and ties to your inventory um, and also your inventory planning. Um, you know, this plays a lot with you guys, <laughs> actually, Rob, you know, really knowing your financials and understanding where your potential um, cash flow pitfalls are going to be. It's really important having monthly meetings with your with your finance function, which would be you know a bookkeeper or a fractional CFO, and we've got lots of resources for fractional CFOs as well as good, solid call it bookkeeping firms. I'm sure you do as well, Rob. So that's number one. I would say you know number two, understand and know your data. You know really understand, find find the right um, software programs that will help you read all of your your metrics. Understanding you know. What is it really costing me to acquire a customer through Amazon? You know, what is, what is it really, um, you know, what's my, what's my, my, call it my true ACOS, my tacos. I mean, we can go down the line of all different types of metrics, but just really knowing, knowing your data, you know, really making sure that you are intentional about that, that you're running reports to understand that data. Um, and then number, and in, in also kind of understanding the data, I'd say ha really have 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 your processes mapped out. Um, understand what your what your SOPs are, um, and and go through the go through that. We have a really really good partnership with um, with a firm that um, a consulting firm that uh, that helps with that process mapping. It also helps with um, with your SOPs, and so that's also something else. If anybody out there is is looking for um, a resource, um, definitely can help there. So I'd say the third too, you're a consumer product company. Know your product roadmap, right? You're, you're gone are the days where you can just guess on Alibaba and get the garlic press and try and sell it. <laughs> um, you know that's that's gone. That ship has sailed. You've got a lot of competitive pressure now on the seller central platform. You got a lot of competitive pressure out there just in general. 
And you know, when you work for middle market consumer product companies like I've worked for, you spend the time, you do a three-year product roadmap and you do that and it's also aligned with your three-year business plan. Now, year three and even year two are a little murky, but year one, that's not. That's pretty much kind of set in stone. And having a product roadmap, knowing where the business is going and being able to firmly confidently know exactly based on some date based on data where the company is going and where it's growing from from your particular uh, focused vertical um, the the product extensions that you're going to be creating and also forecasting what all of that's going to look like wildly important and when you take all three of those and you package them together really what it shows any acquirer is you understand your business very, very well. You're able to articulate your business very, very well. And number three, you also fully understand what what the value of this business brings anyone who becomes that acquirer. That's a lot of good information. We've covered a lot today. So yeah, anybody who just tuned in, uh, here's a couple things for you. Uh, if you want to get a hold of Chris, head on over to Akrumi.com, check out the podcast area. Uh, you can A, you can rewatch if you missed any of the great questions that Chris just answered. And B, actually, the contact information is right there. When you click on it, it'll be in the description area. So you can actually get a hold of him that way. And uh, just once again, if you if you did tune in late, I got Chris Schifferling from Global Wired Advisors. He just great, gave out a great bit of information on why are all these Amazon brands and aggregators for sale. I, I can't stop laughing every time I say it. But uh, <laughs> it was, bad, man. <laughs> yeah, it was absolutely amazing having you on Thanks, and, and appreciate you so much being on the Seller Growth Podcast. Chris and I had this great conversation uh, offline, uh, not even before we started. It was like a few weeks ago. Yeah. And uh, when Mine's I was getting ready to believe that. Yeah, no, it was it was amazing. We talked about some great information and I, I was like, man, we got to get on and get you talking yeah. about this stuff. So, so once again, everybody, be be sure to head on over to Akrumi.com. Check out the uh, podcast section. Again, the video's over there. It does take a little bit to load, but it should be there by the time uh, you get over there. <laughs> and uh, once again, uh, check out Chris Schifferling from Global Wired Advisors. And Chris, thanks again for being on the uh, Seller Growth Podcast. Thank you, Rob. Appreciate it. Appreciate it. Take care. Thanks for joining us this week on the Seller Growth Podcast. Special thanks to our sponsor, Acrumi. If you are an Amazon seller looking for funding, be sure to visit Acrumi.com and fill out the three-minute instant funding form. Join us next week for more great tips to help you grow your business.